You're at the right place at the right time. You found the number one podcast that entertains the space between your ears. I hope you enjoy the show. If you're like me, you're going to laugh a lot. We invite you to pull up a chair. Relax and get ready to take a trip to the vacation kingdom of the world. So, grab your magic bands and your Mickey ears. Here we go. Because it's time for another episode of the Mousecapades Podcast. By the mid-1980s, the fabled happiest place on Earth had fallen on hard times. The Walt Disney Company was on the verge of collapse along with a polarized animation department. Known as the era of the Great Renaissance, it was also deemed Disney's Civil War. Between newcomers hungry to innovate and the old-timers not yet ready to relinquish control, this dark era of the Disney Company was also the shining turning point into what the company has now become today. Listen to Nick... Vicky and Tim as we review the true story, Disney War, by James Stewart. episode we are reviewing the book james uh, james stewart's book disney war very interesting dave and i last year i believe it was either either in march or april if, listeners if you remember this episode we did an episode on waking sleeping beauty and this book kind of mirrors it's along that same timeline i don't know if you've seen the movie tim uh vicky i know we've mentioned it with you um you get we got to sit down and watch it sometime but it went over the disney renaissance era Oh, with right. Michael Eisner and Wells and Katzenberg and how they just rejuvenated the animation studios. This is an amazing book. I really enjoyed it. was a pleasure reading uh, most of the book. I didn't <laughs> read the whole thing. And if the listeners have been listening in the last few episodes, uh, Vicky and Tim have been giving me a hard time. But I've been busy. Leave me alone. Well, you can give me a hard time then. Cause... The government stole me for crying aloud, right? Yes. I, I, I was busy. I was traveling. Kidnapped. Traveling the world. I didn't have time for a book. I had to sleep on the plane. I was going to ask, what, what did you do on the plane? Uh, well, they offered me pretzels and drinks, and nice. I remember that. So you got drunk? No. No, no, I don't I don't. <laughs> you made drink. friends with the stewardess. No, I don't drink. They let him um, go up and sit with the pilot. Yeah, on his did lap. Did you join any clubs? On his lap. The Mile High Club? <laughs> like, with someone or myself? <laughs> hey, I don't judge. It's still part of the clubs. that count? Still counts. Right. You get a card. Vicky's like, dude, you really got to stop this. You have to be PC. Vicky, no. It ain't happening. I, I didn't say PC. Oh. I just... My dad's shaking his head right now, too. I was going to say... You start listening again. We, we, we just seem to go to the trash can so fast it's every me. time. It's me. I'm sorry. But 
Oh, no, it was me a minute ago, but we're not going to rehash what it, I laughed about I before. noticed Tim has pages beyond pages of notes. You have me. I have nothing. I have some highlighted information up to page like 15 in a book. Vicky doesn't didn't even bring her book. Well, maybe you're just smarter than me. I have to write everything down. I don't know, man. I don't know. Anywho, so let's discuss some of the key players. Yeah, go right? for it. Uh, well, first off, we have Eisner, right, CEO of Disney. Took over, I believe, in 84. 84. 84, if I'm not mistaken, all the way to 2004. Interesting story behind him. Do you want to get into the stories now or just list the characters right off the bat? Oh, we can do whatever you want. So, Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, Roy Disney, um, Iger a little bit uh, there at the end, Stanley Gold, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Roth. Those are all like the some of the main players in, in, in this. And Do you have any other main key players no no those are the important ones there's a lot of people in the movie or in the book but those are the big ones so an important thing important fact that i didn't know about michael eisner how how, how would this be perceived vicky in our profession or maybe even in your profession tim let's 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 talk about yours we talk about teaching way too much on this podcast tim you interviewed for an it position with your company but you knew nothing about computers right would you be hired yeah no Right. Michael Eisner knew nothing about the Disney company, never even watched Snow White. Right. They asked was, him if he'd seen it, and he was like, uh, no. I was shocked. Did they ask him, or did he prepare himself if he was asked? No, I thought that they said that they asked, and okay. he just was like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. But you know why, right? Why? Do you know why he never saw the movie? Why? Michael Eisner grew up extremely wealthy. Grew yes, up in New York. The Ext- Jewish part of New York, right? Yes, extraordinarily Not wealthy. that wealth and Jewish people have... Uh, no, but that that does play <laughs> a role. That does that does come into into the story. He grows up very wealthy, and it's Philip Morris money, right? The tobacco company. It's from sure. his grandfather. Sure. And so this kind of lays out and, and shapes his personality because they were extremely frugal with their money. There's a story that he tells where he was in a taxi cab driving home and it was getting ready to rain, and he saw his grandmother about to step onto a bus. And so he told the taxi driver, he said, hey, pull over. We're going to pick my grandmother up, and we're going to take her home. And she scolded him and got on to him for take, spending the money to take a taxi as opposed to the bus because if you take the taxi, you have to go across the bridge, and it's a 25-cent toll. If you take the bus, it's cheaper and fair, and there's no toll. And right. so these are the type of people that, that we're talking about here. Every night... Literally eat their own. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Right there. So every night, they would eat dinner together as well. Very family-oriented. And they would eat dinner, though, by candlelight, and he had to wear a tie. And so we're talking about people who had extreme amount of money, but they wouldn't spend it. They wouldn't. His mother wouldn't take him to see any of these Disney films because they didn't want to spend the money on that That's type right. of, That's right. of, Animation. Uh, of culture. Right, but they wanted his, their kids to be cultured, so they would take them to the theater. And everything had to be thought-provoking, simulating. Right, right. None of this animated foo-foo stuff. I also found it funny. And I know we're probably jumping ahead. Even the relationship he had with his own father. You know, we talked about this before we started recording. Vicky made a funny joke too, and, and you thought of it as well. He had to call his dad. He couldn't even call his dad dad, daddy, whatever, right. or Mister. It had to be Lester. Yeah, he had to call him by his first name. Weird. Well, and you. So they tell the story. Because he thought that it was weird. So he talked to his mother, and his mother said, well, the reason why is that your little sister had a hard time saying daddy. 
And so even Eisner thought at a young age, well, that's that's odd. Why why then do I have to call him Lester? There were a lot of rumors, and they, they touch upon him in the book, that maybe this Lester character isn't even really his father. I was Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Right. Because... Um, he doesn't want to be known as his dad. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense if you if you do the timeline as well. You know, the, the father figures back then in the 40s, how they treated their kids. So, so just a little bit on Michael Eisner. Um, he was born March 7th, 1942. He currently resides in L.A., in, in California. Uh, went to Denison, or Denison uh, University. And... He's worth, his net worth is about $1 billion, and that was according back in 2008. His net worth was about $1 billion. So he's worth about $3 billion now. Well, right. he doesn't have to uh, disclose that anymore, right? Amazing. Right. Uh, uh, just sim- simply amazing. Worked for the Walt Disney Company, but before that, you know, he worked at other television networks, major networks too. NBC, CBS, ABC, and held executive positions there. Well, and Paramount. Oh, yeah, Paramount. Sorry, the rival company to Disney at the time during the 80s. Paramount. Uh, We also have other key players. Uh, Let's go back here. We have uh, Frank Wells, uh, again, brought in at the exact same time as Michael Eisner. Some funny stories about those two cats. They come in at the same time. Yeah. And you want to explain the office story? The office story? Oh, yeah. I didn't write this one down. So they uh, – maybe I need to go back in my book to – tell you word for word but they sit down in their office together and they're staring at each other and eisner finally just uh midday speaks out apparently they didn't say a word to each other right they're sharing an office he just said hey are we going to work like this every day right in the same office and wells being the guy that he is, you know, he even took the number two slot going in. Well, CFO. Position. Right, as the CFO. He decided to take the back seat. He does the same thing here. He just goes ahead and takes the back seat. He moves on to a different office. But they put them in together in the same office. I don't know if they wanted the synergy there, team building, whatever teamwork, or them just to truly work together. But they're sitting there in their office together. And he finally, uh, Eisner finally looks at him. He's like, dude, um basically get out and wells does wells just gets up and leaves and goes to a different office well I, I do remember a lot of the stories had to deal with eisner definitely being the alpha male in that relationship and so that makes sense right which which is surprising because wells was such an adventurous you know or adventurer excuse me he was such an adventurer he was all over the place he's like pippi Longstocking. yeah i mean <laughs> i mean so wasn't he going rock climbing yeah. Uh, when he when he eventually died, his helicopter crashed, and you actually see there's a there's a homage to him over in uh, uh, Matterhorn Mountain on that ride. Oh, you see some of the luggage it says that's Wells, right. Wells on it. Uh, you know, I never put the two and two together. Oh, really? I've seen yeah. that before and never never put the two together. So I, I thought I thought that was interesting. So you have you have Wells there, and basically when he passed away, that's when the Disney company went all to hell. You know, that's when you really had the Disney War firing on all cylinders. Yeah, Eisner really relied heavily upon him, uh, not only as a a friend and a confidant, but as as somebody that he could bounce ideas off of. So you also have Katzenberg. Now, Katzenberg, he he worked with Eisner before? No. Okay. He did not. So So he showed up a week after Eisner and Wells got to disney 
and he really wanted to be part of the company, and so he started hounding them for his, a job. And his nickname was what? They called him Mother. 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 And why they yeah. call him Mother? Well, part of it was because of his stature. He was a shorter guy. He was very uh, whiny and, and very needy. And so the, the thought was that because he wasn't technically in charge of anything, he couldn't be the father. But because of his, his whininess and, and his neediness, he was a female. And so with his stature, he then became mother. Very nice. That's so funny. It's corporate world. It, it really is. Uh, it's nasty. You also have Roy Disney. Yeah. So you have Roy, who just a week before Eisner got there, had ousted the other Disney family member, the in-law. I'm drawing a blank on his name. Why can't I think of his name? He went ahead and, and, and basically told him, ousted him out, right, with the board? Right. He wanted to get rid of them. And uh, the book really doesn't go into whole too grave, uh, too much detail on as to why Roy wanted to get rid of him. Now let's clarify: this is Roy E. Disney, right? Right? This right? Is, sorry. This sorry. is Walt's nephew. Right. This is Walt's nephew, and he was the head of the animation and on the board of directors. So yeah, so it was basically a, a, a boardroom coup, Vicky and listeners, by Roy Disney. He ousted uh, Walt's uh, son-in-law, Ron Miller. Ron yeah, Miller was it. his name. Uh, just just before, like the week before Eisner got there. Well, they and they voted to bring Eisner in on a Saturday, and he started on a Monday. Yeah. So, I mean, it was that quick. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. It was. It was that quick. It was like one of those, like, just emergency votes to bring him in. And that's actually mentioned in the book. So you have the Disney company, and they really were going down the crapper, guys. Like uh, Things like, were bad. Were really bad, and they were, they were going to, they're like, belly up bad. Well, and the only thing that was making money... So when we when you think of Disney, you think of Disney animation, right? But the that movies. wasn't making money. That was even more in the crapper right. than the rest of the company. And Roy was that in was charge of it. was actually out the door, yeah. So the animation company right. was actually out the door. They were gone. They were moving. They were, they were gone. Right. The only thing that was making money were the parks. Right. That was it. So the animation studios, like, yeah, they even the animators, they were leaving one by one. They actually right. made fun of the location they were in because it was a ghost town. Well, and they weren't making money. They weren't. They, they weren't making. Black they weren't getting paid. Awful. Well, but they're going to remake that in a movie. I think it'll do better. But not that. Not Disney wasn't making money. It was the animators weren't getting paid very well. Right. And so they had opportunities to go other places. Yep. And they started doing it. Like, uh, oh man, um, drawing a blank. DreamWorks. Well, DreamWorks wasn't there yet. But no, no, no the guy who who ran off. Uh, he was an animator with Disney. Don. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of them. Anywho, we, one of the one of the animators that saw himself as uh, basically Walt, like Walt, he, he seen he had the same type of vision. He was charismatic, like Walt Disney. People followed him. He got a lot of the animators to actually leave the Disney company, the Disney Animation Studios, and they formed what is now DreamWorks. But it, oh well, lot, Jeffrey Katzenberg did that with David Geffen and Steven Spielberg. But back in the early '80s. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of what the, the company is. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But Miles and I watched an American Tale the other day. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you guys remember that. Mid-80s, I guess, is when it was released. Disney lost a lot of their animators to that company that, that animated that film. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. It, I, I can't think of who, who that was, but that was a Spielberg film. And so Spielberg was has always kind of been Disney's, not nemesis, but... You know, competitor, I guess. 
And right. so he's when Katzenberg ended up leaving Disney, and we'll get to that story later, he ended up starting with Spielberg and David Geffen. They used David Geffen and all of the, the millions of dollars that that guy had to start DreamWorks. But yeah, you're right. You know, everything was going downhill, and so Disney was bleeding animators left and right. So one of the first things that, that Eisner did when he came in there, because this was going on, was he started to challenge some of the old, um, th- these decades-old thoughts, right? So we all know Mickey and we all know Minnie. One of the very first things that he decided to do was have the two of them get married. Yeah. And Roy was up in arms. Oh, my gosh, you can't, they can't get married. The idea that our characters are going to get married and then they're going to have sex was... <laughs> just it was obscene to some of these people and so no way this wasn't going to happen but eisner came at it from the standpoint of you know we've got to kickstart this and 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 something else too eisner usually solved problems by finding the most expensive solution and so he thought that he could come in and get a few of these quick wins without without spending much money you know let's just have some cartoons where they run off and they get married but when in reality that's not what Disney was about at all. It was it was an outrageous idea. Even though when they hired him, Roy told him, no idea is too outrageous. You know, we need to attack this from every different angle. And so that's what Eisner started to do. So I think the animator I was, I was, I was trying to think of was Don Bluth. Okay, so he's the one that did an American Tale. Right. He uh, ended up leaving the, the company. Do you know, does it say what year? Um, let me see here. Walt Disney Productions. He's he's part of the Renaissance, um, leading up to it. But then he ended up uh, ended up leaving. Uh, I'm trying to see here. I I can't find. I'll keep looking and uh, get back to you here. But uh, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure he was the one that ended up leaving. He got a whole bunch of animators to leave with him, like half the crew, and they were currently working on. Oh, jeez. Which, which which movie was there? They were currently working on. It wasn't Black Cauldron. Um, it wasn't Little Mermaid. Cause was it Rescuers? No, because uh, I believe Lassiter was in charge of that one. So I know, like a lot of those movies, and we've talked about it before. It they re, they were releasing them about every four years. Right. And you learn in the book that some of these ideas. Well, let's just use Frozen as an example. That was an idea that Katzenberg and Eisner had. In the mid '80s, in the late '80s, right. I guess, and the movie that was ended up being released isn't the same film that they discussed back then. But you're talking 20 years worth of development on some of these films, and so they—I'm thinking that they probably would have had to have left in the late '70s if they were going to get an American Tale out in the mid '80s. You know, that's hand drawn. And right. it just takes years to do that type when of work. When does the fox and the hound come into play? Maybe it was the fox and the hound. That's what I was thinking. I was, was thinking maybe it was the fox and the hound that they that, that they walked out on, and it they were uh, they had like six months left, and he walked out, and he took half the animators with him, and so that put them back. And that was just another something else, you know, to add to the plate that was just adding fuel to the fire right. of why the animation studios was going downhill. So. So let's kind of get back on track here. Sorry, I know we, we got we got I got kind of off track with the animation part of it because that's just what I love, right? Um, yep. But so you can clearly see that Disney was really truly in 
the Dark Ages. They really were going belly up. The animation studio, like we said, was out the door. It was people actually thought it was done. Right. And you have Roy, who wanted to save the studios, he couldn't do it. He tries to get rid of key players uh, that basically weed in the garden, you know, force management, you know, and then that development aspect of bringing key players in to kind of put some new blood into the Disney company and, and bring them where they are today. Now, love them or hate them, you have Eisner who joined with Katzenberg and Frank Wells, and those are the dudes from Hollywood, you know, and they, from there on, there was a fork on the road, and that company just went an entirely different direction, which is the one, I would have to say, probably a 180 from Walt. Eh, I don't know if I want to go as far as what Walt dreamed of, but it, they really weren't Walt-esque or had the same vision as Walt, or maybe they just didn't do it in the same manner. Maybe, you know, um, when it came to ethics, Walt would have handled things a little differently, but boy, these individuals that we just named were cutthroat, and that's all they knew. But you know what? That cutthroat attitude bred a lot of success. Oh, without doubt. So, like I said, they were brought in to make changes, and, and they were told, there's no idea that's too crazy, okay? So, we all have heard the stories about how Walt was obsessed with the parks and the resorts and making sure things were clean, right? Well, Eisner had this thought in his head that, that, that the resorts could be as entertaining as the parks if he kept the quality the same as the parks, you know, the same standards from the cast members and the cleanliness and all of this, right? So he began proposing some ideas like a Mickey Mouse resort out in California. And it was without these guys thinking outside the box and coming with some of these ideas it's because of them that, that Disney's where it's at now. Some of the resorts that, that are on property now would not be there if it wasn't for these guys. And some of these, they called them the gong sessions. Yeah, I remember you know? that. Uh, I don't know how often it happened, but yeah, they would, they would have a time period where any cast member, if you wanted to pitch an idea, this was your opportunity to get five, ten minutes to pitch an idea, maybe once a year. But everyone's idea would be heard. And there was an actual cartoon that came out of that. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, um, Hercules is one of the oh, cartoons yeah. that came out of that from a cast member. Now, really, it wasn't the cartoon. It changed the story. It evolved. Yeah, it was basic. Yeah, basically, it wasn't Hercules himself, but it was about the heroes within, not the outward. Right? We've heard that before in a lot, a lot of, in a, in a lot of uh, Disney stories, but. The premise of the story stayed the same, but the characters kind of changed, and they made it into a cartoon. And it was semi-successful. I wouldn't say it was Disney's best, but it was different, unique, and it made money. Right. One of the first things that Eisner did as, as part of all of that was he fired over a 1,000 people. Yeah. Just like right off the bat. Right off the bat. Hey, you don't have a job here anymore. Right. Can you imagine? No. Uh. That'd be like getting a new principal or, in your case, getting a new boss in IT. Um, this whole floor is gone. Well, and you know, when he started, my people. part of that was because of the Nothing work ethic. Yeah. You know, when he first started, so he gets there that first Monday morning, <laughs> and, like, the work day's over at noon. Right. Like, everybody's so playing softball. It's very leisurely the afternoon. Yeah, nothing's getting done. So in the book, it describes how, I, I believe, he's in Walt's office. And the image that I get when I'm reading this story through the author, it seems like a nice summer day. You know, or spring day, it's very quiet. The grass is perfect. You know, you can hear, you can hear the birds outside. 
but not necessarily people working. Right. You know, that's what the image I got was an old building, an old facility. The window's up, you hear the birds, but you can't hear anyone walking around. You can't hear anyone working down the hall because they're not there. They're gone. And his mentality, they work 24-7. Where Eisner comes from and where Wells comes from, they don't get time off. Right. 365, 24-7, to the wall every day because it's all about making money. And he made a quote when it comes to making money, remember? He doesn't care about making great films. He doesn't care about making, what, great movies. He doesn't care about make, having great parks. He cares about having and making, what do you say, great money or something like that. I'm yeah. not quoting it perfectly here, but... He cares about the money, and when you have the money, comes the great films, yeah, comes so the great parks, comes the great animation. You know, he was getting ideas thrown at him constantly to come up with, you know, different films or, or cartoons, and there were several of them that went on to do really well with other companies because these guys were from Hollywood. They wanted to branch out into live action films as well, and so. I, I think Indiana Jones was something that he had done at Paramount or, or wherever. But because they wanted to branch out, they passed on a lot of things that ended up being really good. And another quote that he had was, it doesn't matter about the movies that you miss. It's about the movies that you, you make and how much money you make on those. Right. You know, And so he was very focused on... And getting a project, doing it well, and making a ton of money when you know doing it, and having the foresight to see the next one coming up. He was a uh, he was a killer at that of seeing what was up and coming, and and focusing on how much money he's going to make on the next film. Well, him so and the, Katzenberg were they were always at fishing, that. and they were they only fished for the good stuff, you know. And they never did a film where they felt like they could just make some money on it. You had to make tons of money on it, and that's when they'd bite. Well, and they really reduced costs. You know, they brought costs way down. By doing that. The production costs. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. At the time, yeah, yeah. So the production costs were starting to grow. You had films like Die Hard that were spending 50 and $60 million. And Eisenberg was like, I'm not spending that kind of money to make a film. You have to stick to a simple plot, he said. Right. He said, even though if it's been done over, he goes, you know, you have to be creative and think of outside the box. But if you stick to simple plots, that will make you the most money. So one thing that they did during this time... Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm cutting you off. He wasn't a fan of 48 Hours. Oh, no. Right. No, which he didn't like Eddie Murphy. Right. He didn't like Eddie Murphy at all, which ended up becoming a great series. Right. And making tons of money. Yeah, he, there were a lot of films that he was on the fence about like that. And some of them would, and some of them he discarded, like you said earlier. Right. And became great films. Yep, absolutely. So during this time, they brought in... Gary Wilson to take over all the financial stuff. Yes. And again, talking about money, Gary Wilson, the first thing that this guy did is raise ticket prices. Yep. He said, ah, ticket prices are too low. Now, think about this. The parks are the only thing making money. And this guy comes in and has the cojones to raise ticket prices, alienate some of the folks that are spending their money in the park, and they anticipated a drop in attendance. No. Attendance continued to rise. And they made hundreds of millions of dollars just by making that one change. It's insane. They continue to do it every year, too. Yes, they are. Yeah, it had no impact to the visitors, and they're surprised by how much people were willing to pay. Now, that, to me, is key, because that kind of sets the stage for the next 30 years. We're still there, and people are still, I mean, I've said it before, I'm willing to pay a little bit more to, 
to force some of the crowd levels down a little bit because right. it's insane. And and but what you're seeing is is that they're putting such a good quality product out there that it doesn't matter. People are willing to pay it. You know, we talked in our our news episode earlier in the week about the Star Wars hotel, the resort, how it's going to cost maybe a thousand a night. Same thing. If it, if the experience right. is there, people are going to want to pay that, and they will pay it gladly. They'll pay that. So and that all started with these key players, right? Absolutely, the, the three of them. You know, I mean, well, Wells wasn't there that long before he passed but with Katzenberg and uh, Eisner definitely you know it all started with the, with those cats and that is what we have today that is the common trends common thing well that's the entire culture the Disney culture of today was changed. put in place by those three characters right. and that dynamic changed and shifted quite a bit when Wells passed away and it's funny how they have it's just an illusion it really is after reading this book the parks itself and the ideals and, like, the keys to the kingdom, like the tour and everything like that, it's the illusion of it being about Disney, being about Walt's dream. It is not. It is by far the 180. It's the opposite concept of Walt's dream. It's all about the green. That's not, right. Not go-away green, but, but money. It is not about Walt's dream. But they paint that picture, and you're put into this... Um, I don't know, non-reality or, or whatever, I don't know what to call it, this delusional state. But you think it's about Walt and his dream and everything's happy, rainbows and unicorns. It's not. These cats come in, they change it forever. Well, these guys didn't care about the parks no, in so much no. as the amount of money that they were able to bring in to fund all of their other ventures, all of these other films, all of the other animation. And that's what they cared about. They cared about the, uh, the movies, specifically. Right. Just the movies. Put them animation aside in the parks. Right. Because that was their background, all of them. Well, it, it, it pained them to have to continue on with the animation because the animation was losing money. But they, they knew that they had to continue to fund it for two reasons. The first one was Roy Disney. Had, he had that, that Disney name and control of the board. Yeah. <laughs> and the second one was this, the thought, the perception by the public that Disney does animation. Can we backtrack a little bit on a key player and talk about Roy Disney? Yeah. So you had the guy who had control of the board, and he's he's asked out, you know, one night at a restaurant to step down. Like retiring age is, what was it, in the 70s? 72. Yeah, 70. I think 70, at Disney they had a rule. 72, it was like, he was 73. Yeah. Right. So they asked him to step down. Right. And he's like, um, no, I'm Disney. Right. You know, I'm not going to step down. They still, but yet they wanted him to walk away and go away so they could have control of the board, but use him for his name. Right. The persona of his name. I just thought that Sad. was terrible. I think we might have talked, I might have talked to Tim about that. Um, not on, on the air, but when we were, uh, beforehand, we, when we recorded the news while you were gone. And I just, um, I just remember, you'll remember who I'm talking about when Ray was, pretty much given that same situation here he wasn't ready to retire i felt so sorry for him and so when i was reading that particular passage i was thinking of him and thinking how sad he was to give up something that he loved so much 
and put his life into, and that's what I was thinking of when I was reading that. Well, and even more so for Disney. I mean, he, he grew up as a little kid with right. his uncle right. riding the train around his yard, and, right. and and all of that fun stuff. You know, Disney was his life, he, everything. I found it funny. He was the one that was looked at as the stupid one, though, right? Right. Yeah, everyone thought he was the stupid one. It, the family, that is, right. thought he was the stupid one. And then so did the people he worked with. They said he was the stupid Disney. Right? It's just really weird how you get those nicknames. But what, what's crazy, so it was Bryson. Bryson asked him to retire and said, hey, you know, you've passed the mandatory retirement age by a year. We want you to step down. And he was irate. Like, Disney couldn't believe, or excuse me, Roy couldn't believe that they're asking him to retire. He said, hey, man, you're making an awful mistake. And that, and, and, and the book describes that he looked him right in the eyes. And I just envisioned Roy pointing at in his face saying you're making an awful mistake. And he even said, he went on to say, you're going to regret, and you're going to regret this. Right, personally. That's what he said. And then he got up, and he walked out. He didn't say anything else to him. But you know what? I think looking back at the book, I think it was that time in, in, in that period, that lit, a, that lit a fire underneath Roy's butt, because he kind of, he played a role in saving the animation studio. I mean, so did Katzenberg. So did Eisner. Don't get me wrong. Um... But I think that little fire underneath his butt as well. Oh, absolutely. It, I think he like got I, complacent. Honestly, I, really, I do. So maybe that was needed. Right. Right? But I think you did. You got more productivity out of him after that because he didn't want to go down without a fight. But what he didn't realize was he was actually doing his job. Right. Finally. Again, I should say. So I just wanted to go back to Roy real quick and, and discuss him as well. Well, I want to continue on with the animation and, and kind of move the story Good. forward a awesome. bit. One of the things that Katzenberg was really good at, and he's still really good at, even though he sold DreamWorks now and isn't part of it, but he recognized that Disney had a monopoly on animation. And so he went to Eisner and said, we've got to leverage this somehow. You know, things have been bad, but we, we own animation. And so we need to turn this thing around. And so they started going in and uh, coming up with new ideas and uh, for for future movies, Katzenberg himself was responsible for the story of Lion King. You know that was his idea, which was a B-rated film at the time. A lot of animators did not want to be on that film because they had other stuff coming out, like Lion King. Uh, or excuse me, I'm sorry. What was it Aladdin? Was it Aladdin they had, was being um, worked at the same time? Well. They had Little Mermaid being worked. Aladdin was mentioned, and they had some of the script and, and, and storyboards done for it. But a lot of people felt that a, a movie set in the Middle East wasn't appropriate. And so they kind of put that on the back shelf. Katzenberg fought to have that film made as well. Okay. But that entire Renaissance period, Katzenberg fought for all of those films. I just remember from, and with Waking Sleeping Beauty that it was The Lion King was pro on those three films. So you had the, the, the three films that just rejuvenated the animation studios. Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Lion King, excuse me, four, Beauty and the Beast. Right. Lion King, from what I gathered, was actually the one that was, if you had to rank them, was set at the lowest, you know, last. No one wanted to work on that one because they thought it was going to be boring. But as it started gaining steam, people realized, hey, this is the one to work on. This is the one getting all the attention. Let's jump ship. Let's see if we can move departments over to this this film. Right, and one of the reasons for that was because the animators hated Katzenberg. They would draw little 
uh, little short films or videos oh, I about know. him. <laughs> caricatures. And, yeah, caricatures. In the office. You know, the in an office bomb. that looks like it was about to fall apart. Like it just right. kind of implode on itself. Yeah, they, and, and a lot of these cartoons were like crude, obscene type things. And it was like the Wild West in the animation department too because they were just doing their own thing. They weren't being really governed, except for Katzenberg. Katzenberg would come in and try to round them up. Right. But I think the damage was already done with a lot of these animators because it was the Wild West for so long. They're getting away with doing so much. They didn't take Katzenberg seriously. He did what they did, but they'd often throw parties and take breaks. And, and really, they got complacent, like you said earlier, themselves. Well, they worked for Roy. They didn't work for Jeffrey Katzenberg. Exactly. And, and Roy was okay with it. Right, right. And so, you know, Katzenberg was just this whiny little kid coming in, telling everybody what to do. That's one of the reasons why nobody liked his idea of the Lion King, though, because he had worked that from the ground up. He went early in his career to Africa and was a page runner and thought it would be great to do this father-son type of thing set in Africa. What he didn't realize was that he didn't really have a good story, and that's that's the basis behind any good Disney film, even Pixar now. The it's Disney all about the story. Walt always told a story. That's how he right. started everything. And if you could sell a story, you got it. So he didn't have the best idea in the world. So Katzenberg, real quick, guys, real quick, Diddy, you know, he would he was quick to fire people all the time, too. So if he didn't like something, like maybe he walked in the animation studios and found a caricature of him on the on the office board. You know, we'll walk in the break room and, and it's, it's it's what do you call it, uh, pinned in there, you know? Right. With thumbtack. Going old school, Vicky knows that. Uh, he, he'd find out who it was and fire him. Right. If he if he came across a memo that was written about him, but didn't include him, you know, but it was about him, he'd find out who wrote it, he'd fire him. Well, he was a very jealous individual. He was so jealous of, Eisen, of uh, Eisner, the yes, salary yes, and the, the stock options that the guy was getting, that he ended up several times trying to renegotiate his deal and finally was able to. I'm trying to think. He ended up getting a $750,000 a year salary and $4 million for some of the work he had previously done, paid towards a beach house that he was having made, like a like a, a bonus, right. basically. Yeah. Um, and that was for all of his artistic contributions. But he would do those kinds of things in the middle of production on a film. He would go in and he would say, you know what, I don't like this. Yep. And he would just cut it out. So Cut it all. Well, we know that uh, Ashman and Minkin, right, wrote a lot of yes. that music. Howard Ashman, yeah. Right. They brought him in from Broadway, and that changed everything. So some of the things that Katzenberg fought with these guys to do, like in Little Mermaid, was cut the song Kiss the Girl. He hated yeah, it. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Right, a huge mistake. Um. You know, part of that was that the cost was running up, and and so Eisner had tasked Katzenberg to keep costs down. Right, cost was getting up to close to forty million dollars, and so they were trying to figure out ways to save money. And so he was like, "No, we're we're just going to get rid of the song. It doesn't serve a purpose." That's what do you right. mean? It doesn't serve that. a purpose. He would he would actually delete scenes. Yeah, he would go into like the computer system himself and delete it. And yes, get rid of them. and delete it. But yeah, that's why people hated the guy. Because all that hard work, you would, because I there were some cases where a department within the studio had been working uh, six months to, to a year 
on a specific scene, getting it down with all the detail, and he'd come in and just cut it, delete it. Well, he would do things like go into the... So it was right around that time when they started using the new computer system for some of his animation. So they would hand draw and then run it into a computer. Yeah. And one of the things that he did on Little Mermaid as well to save money was scale the colors back on Ariel. Just by scaling them back, he saved like $750 million or $1,000. You know, and that's a little bit here, a little bit there, makes a ton of money. And I don't know that it hurt to film, no, but, but to take made, that song out would have destroyed that but film. But it made a lot of money in the, in the long run. And so you, you, by the end of the day, you had animators driving BMWs that were once driving beat-up Hondas oh, you know, sure. to, to the parking lot. Moved into a brand new animation studio. But what I'm saying is, would that movie have done as well as it as it did if Kiss the Girl isn't in it? Or it has done as well as it has because that song was left in it and they took out some of the color from Ariel. You see what I'm saying? No, so I some of it. the changes that he made were great. They made sense and they saved the company money. But some of the changes that he, he wanted to make he was just cost- would have destroyed it. He was cost-cutting happy. Right, he was he right. was overzealous with it, but but it made the company a lot of money, no doubt, and it, and it filtered into the employees. Well, and then the merchandise—they were making a hundred million dollars a month in merchandise. So, like, literally, right, and literally, when these cats took over, and within a few years, you did have employees that were making, you know, thirty thousand dollars a year that are now making in the hundreds. Like, well, it, it not ha- the animators. No, the animators. The, well, that's how they were able to steal a lot of the animators and get them over to DreamWorks. Because when Katzenberg left, they were all making still fifty, sixty thousand, and Katzenberg doubled and tripled their salaries. And so, because Katzenberg was mad at Eisner, and so he was like, "Yeah, I'm taking everybody I can with me," and only the most loyal stayed. See, I was under the impression. And I'm I'm basing this off of, you know, some of this information is from Disney War and it's also from uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty. Those animators, it was like, it was within after after A Little Mermaid. They went from peanuts to making tens and tens of thousands of dollars and they were driving Porsches and Beamers. Yeah, so that's right. The year before... They were they were driving like beat up Hondas. No, that's right. You know, but that's the same time that he left to start DreamWorks, and so Disney stepped in. See, right. remember these films were in production for years. Oh, prior. no doubt. No, I know. And like- so while they're making Little Mermaid, and they're making Aladdin, and they're making Beauty and the Beast, you know, these are all running concurrent. Which and started so, in the early eighties, right? Little right. Mermaid. Yeah, and so. Because Katzenberg was stealing these guys, Disney had to come in and be like, okay, we're going to offer you the same amount. Whatever the offer is that you're getting from them, got it. So we're going to match so it. So it just Disney, happened at the same okay, time. Got it. Right. So but that's, how, okay. that's why they were able to trade in their cars. Right. You know? No, they were. It was, like, it was like within a year. Yeah, it didn't have anything to do really with the success of those films in so much that it had to do with the fact that Katzenberg was leaving and starting DreamWorks. Right. So it, it pretty fascinating though, because Disney was making a ton of money. You know, like I said, a hundred million a month. Well, that's one point two billion dollars a year on merchandise. Insane. So Eisner saw an opportunity. He was like, "Well, let's open up the Disney store. You know, let's let's monopolize yeah, on so this. Let's go there. Let's take this from a hundred so million dollars into this now. Right. A new idea. A new idea because they see an opportunity and they say we're going to branch out. And I don't remember, and I didn't write it down, but I think they ended up opening 
3,000 stores by the time it was all said and done. And I know that they've brought that number back down quite a bit. But 3,000 stores, it added a ton of money to the bottom line. So they, 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 they really did see this as an opportunity to get their stuff into the broader market and not just at the parks. At the same time, they decided they wanted to start releasing film, some of their films on tape. Right. You know, Blockbuster Video had, had started and people had VCRs at home. And so that's a big thing that, that Roy Disney was against. You know, they, they wanted to. Right. He wanted to keep things in the vault. And so in the concept of that, literally, now, literal vault now. So he did want to keep it in the vault, literally. Right. But then later on when they started releasing them on VHS, they also kept that same concept, though, because they even talked about only releasing the drive up the money. Right. And so that was one of the, I can't think of the term, of the, the compromises that right. Roy and Eisner had, well, with Katzenberg. The first film that they released was Pinocchio. And they sold that at seventy nine ninety nine. I mean, that's crazy, right? Yeah, that's insane. It sold out. So they saw revenues jump from three hundred million dollars a year, or I'm sorry, three hundred, yeah, three hundred million a year with that with um, some of these films because what they were doing was they were re-releasing them into theaters, and so people were going and they were watching them in theaters. So they went from $300 million a year to some of these vaulted films to $800 million because they started releasing them on tape. Roy Disney was very adamant, though, that certain films would not be released, like Cinderella and Snow White. They, were, they could release some of these others, like Pinocchio and Dumbo and Sleeping Beauty, but you could not touch you know, the, the pristine... Right. They, they used a term for it, I don't remember, but you couldn't touch, like, Walt's babies, basically. Right. The first princess. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, because of the success, the board came in and renegotiated with Eisner to keep him on. And he ended up getting a salary of 750000 a year, because Katzenberg was already there. So he got an increase to where Katzenberg was. But then he got $6.8 million to $32.6 million from selling off some of his stock options. So in 1988, he's bringing in, right, we'll just round it off and say about $25 million. Insane. So that's how he started. Well, it is to him now, right? That's how he started amassing the wealth that he has. Insane, man. Not in our lifetime. No, not in our lifetime at all. And this is where in the book, but I'll be honest, this is where I go dead. This is where you are? Yeah, I, I, I finish off here. So anything from here on out is all you. Well, this is the point of the book where they start discussing those Renaissance films. Right. And so they, they, they pick up and they start discussing bringing in uh, Ashman and Minkin. You know, they, they, went to, they went and grabbed these guys from Broadway. From Broadway, and he had just yeah. finished Little Shop of Whores. Right, and he was very concerned that, that he was going to be working for Disney and he was gay. And Disney's a family company. And so he was very tentative about going in there and working with them because he didn't know how that he was going to be treated and perceived. They came in, though, and they started writing songs, and everybody fell in love, and, and none of that mattered. And a lot of it was Broadway-esque, and that's what, you know, so the Disney company, they weren't used to, or the Disney Animation Studios, they weren't used to songs that were Broadway-esque, you know? Right. And... uh 
Well, the Sherman brought, brothers. He brought it. You know, he that's brought, what they were used to. Right. He brought a different element to the animation series or the animation films, and it was a huge success. Well, can and, you imagine what the films would be like without those two? I mean, no. we wouldn't be sitting about, here discussing Minkin them. and Sherman. And I mean, Ashman. I mean, Ashman. Or are you talking about Ashman and Minkman? Minkman okay, both. It. Yeah. You know, because like I said, he was concerned, and he he really didn't want to do it. He didn't want to work for Disney because right. it was a family company, and he was gay. And it turns out that he had AIDS. Yeah, and he, he, and he died on the um, the night that Beauty and the Beast received a big award. That's right. They won the Tony. Yeah, the Tony Award. and uh, Which they weren't supposed to win. <laughs> the animation studio, the, or the, the cast members, or the you know, cast members or employees, the animators, I should say, went and visited him at the uh, hospital. And there's Howard Ashman wearing his Beauty and the Beast sweater, you know. And uh, they told him, you know, we won. We got it. You did it, and it, that's a very sad time, you know, to be part of something so, so grand and to know that you got there because of Howard Ashman and the songs. Because really, it was the music that made the films and the storyline. Well, yeah, we talk about that in these new release or these live actions that they're going to be putting out. Right. You know, how are they going to do Aladdin without the music? Well, see, so that's why you know Frozen did so well. It was the music, and you hear it all the time, day in and day out, and it sticks with you. It's the music. Let it go. Come yeah. on, you gotta <laughs> let it go. It, how, but I mean, how yes. often have we heard of a story of a of a king and a queen, and one of them dies, or both of them die, and you have this princess, and you know they have to find their place in this world? It's like every Disney film. But if you have the music to back it up, that's catchy, and every you know you, you have something there, especially when when it's I don't even. Trying to say here, but Broadway esque, you know, right. when you have it like that. Uh, that I'm not professional or, or even going to say I know any knowledge as far as that goes, but uh, the music industry. But they brought that flair back, and it was a huge success. Yeah, right. that genre is. Yeah. Um, it's big, and it's big with. Um, There's Vicky. <laughs> There's so many varieties of generations that will listen to that. So then you would have the older people taking their grandchildren and stuff to these movies and it was good for everybody and I think that's where it really hit was um, because that music was like Broadway and Broadway was kind of had that because we're talking about Eisner being raised with money the the kind of the rich feel to it when you if you go to Broadway you kind of think of yourself or I did growing up I never thought I'd be able to go see a Broadway musical because they seem to be expensive and so you get all that and people you know you tie that all in and it just added to the movie right i'm gonna f- switch gears real quick okay, back to howard fine. ashman real quick it's something just crept in my mind here's the creeper in me all right so so i read up a lot on howard ashman and i've listened to all of his music you know as far as disney is concerned you know the disney music all of the uh music that uh the songs that made it that didn't make it you know things like that stuff he recorded on a tape recorder. So, after doing a little research, I was like, you know what? It'd be kind of cool to have his boyfriend uh, on an episode, right? Because I thought he would know another side of the story that the untold, you know, somehow. Um, it'd be pretty cool if we can get his perspective on Howard Ashman during those times, right? When he was with Disney, during the glory years, up into the point of his death. And I tracked them down. I was going to say. In New York. And, uh, 
because that's where eventually where he went back. Howard Ashman went back. Well, they moved York. production up there to right. New York, so because he was sick. So I, I I tracked down an address and a phone number, and so many times I had debated whether to call that number, and I I don't I couldn't do it. Chicken I don't know doubt. why. Well, I felt like. It was almost like I felt like I was being respectful by not calling yeah. and trying to, because maybe we should just leave it alone. But it's a fascinating but story. It, it, re- it really is, and I would love to hear the other perspective. Well, maybe we you need know? to send him a letter. I was um, going to say, I you still, can always ask him or tell him I still he got needs it. to write a book. I still got it, but you know, I I dug deep, and I, I'm and it's his number. I, I got I got the address and the number. Um, through process of elimination and, and, and things like that, and and, and through other uh, individuals that, that I know. But uh, I just, you know, I, I never had the guts to do it. Never had the guts to do it. Well, we may need to. I'll do it. I have no guts. You will? Have, You'll call? Yeah, yeah. Well, I won't call. It's like a letter. Start, He's going to send a letter. I'll send so a personalized times, note. Well, so many times I sat there and I, at our kitchen table at the old house, Vic, and I'm, I'm, I have it in front of me. And my wife made fun of me because I had it on the fridge for about a year. Yeah, but that's awesome, really. It stayed, it stayed, it stayed on the fridge for a good year, and I, and I sat there. I took it down a few times and had my cell phone out, and I thought to myself, "What do I say? Like, what do you say?" That's right? why you need a producer. <laughs> we need an intern, right? It's like, what what do you say? Like, hey, I'm a fan, and you know, I you know, I love Howard Ashman's music, and the story was very intriguing of his life, and. By the way, I have this podcast, and I would like for you to come on and talk about it. Isn't that kind of disrespectful, you think? He probably expects it to some extent because his significant other was pretty famous. Yeah, I'm I'm sure he's handled and dealt with that before. Yeah? I'd imagine. I think a note would be more personal. Nick's going to look it up. Anywho, I got us us totally sidetracked. Oh, that's all right. I'm going to wrap this episode up and because we're not going to be able to review the entire book this okay. time. Okay. And I promise, listeners and Vicky. And I promise. And, and Tim, I'll do a much better job of getting my reading done, my homework done. Practice what I preach, right? Uh, Trivia night will be over for me. So There yeah. we go. Yeah, there, yeah, that's right. Well, it's a good opportunity, too. We can invite the listeners to pick the book up. Go, you know, go to your local library or whatever. Amazon has copies for about five, seven bucks. Or and follow along with us. <laughs> but you got to finish it. I, I know. That's but the joke. They can follow the audio. Along. Would you say it was 25 hours to listen to it? Oh, yeah. There's an audio book, too. I tried looking for the audio book because, you know, I'm traveling quite a bit. And I figured, you know, I could, while I'm driving in the car, because I can't read it while I'm driving, but I can listen to it, definitely. Yeah. It's it's like 25 or 26 hours long. No I, big I found deal. it. <laughs> okay. Well, I found it after I finished reading it, and I was like thinking the same thing. I was like, "Where was it at?" Because I looked, and our library has it. Oh, CD? No, it's through uh, the app on the phone. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'll show you here. You need to listen to it on your way to Disney. It's free. Yeah, it's free. Nice. But the listeners can follow along and and listen to it, or or you know, send us some questions about uh, what we've already read, or sure, what I've already or how we interpreted it. Yeah. But I want to wrap things up a little bit because we're talking about these Renaissance films. You know, I mentioned that, that Ashman got sick, and so they moved production up north to uh, to New York. They moved it from California up there, and nobody knew what was going on. They just knew he was sick and dealing with something. But I wanted to mention that he passed away before the actual film was released. Right. 
And so, like Nick alluded to, you know, he was on his deathbed uh, as all of that was going on. But Little Mermaid opened in 1989, and domestically it made $110 million. Biggest release for Disney ever, uh, animated-wise. And so... All of a sudden, Katzenberg says, you know what? We've made all this money. We're going to go ahead and we're going to release one every year instead of every four years, right? They had to shuffle the animation department. They had to retool and, and bring people in and, and, and gear up because they just they weren't staffed. They didn't have the equipment and, and, to do a film every year. But that's how they got onto this, this release cycle that they're on now was because of Jeffrey Katzenberg and the success of The Little Mermaid. They knew that they had other successes with Aladdin coming up and Beauty and the Beast and then The was Lion King. Was that every King. year or was that every few years? So originally it was every four years. Disney's right. methodology was every four years. Right, and Disney was true to that up until a certain point. Absolutely. It was at this point when they started, when Katzenberg said, it's going to be every year. But I mean, even under Katzenberg, was it every year? I don't think it was. It wasn't, but right. that's because they didn't have things in production right, enough. Like you're, well, right, like you were saying. Yeah, they had to, they had to, they had to tool it's up. It's every two, two years, right? That's the way it's been. Okay. So, but now with Pixar in the mix, and sure, we read about sure. that a little bit later, they were able to do one every year. Yeah, poor, poor Lassiter. Uh, so he worked on Rescues Down Under. Real quick before we wrap up, I'm sorry. A little, I've, I know a I've talked about this note. before. Poor guy was testing out his new computer animation stuff with Rescues Down Under, and that totally flopped. And Disney was pretty much like, dude, you got to go. Right. And he left and formed Pixar and came right back. Yeah. Anywho. And made a ton of money doing right. it. Right. I mean, right. things always tend to work out, right? Right. And so did Good Tim, for him. Bur- Tim Burton. Same thing. He ended up leaving, and now he's back. So, yeah, wrap us up. So is that, is that it? Well, so I wanted to mention that, because we've brought it up in this episode, that... The next film was supposed to be Aladdin, so they had beauty, or they had, um, I'm sorry, Little, Little Mermaid, Mermaid released, and the next one was Aladdin. It was Michael Eisner who came in and said that a movie set in the Middle East would never work. He was dead set against it. Roy Disney and Katzenberg ended up pushing him over the edge, shall we say, and, and convincing him that that they were so far into production that they might as well finish it. But what they did was is they went and started Beauty and the Beast next and Beauty and the Beast came out before Aladdin did now Minkin and Ashman had the story of Aladdin and all the music done before they ever picked up anything for Beauty and the Beast and so I thought that was interesting that that these these guys were done even you know even though he passed away before Beauty and the Beast was finished he had that's how we have all the music from him for Aladdin it's because they had written that before so but Beauty and the Beast received an award while before he died. Yeah, so that was for the Tony. Right, 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 right. And we'll talk about that later because Disney went into New York and bought this building, this rundown theater, and they revamped it there in Times Square area. And I, I don't, I haven't, I've been to several shows on Broadway. I don't know that I've been to this theater or not, but it was part of them going in and re, rejuvenating that theater that kind of transitioned that whole area to what it is today. It was run down. There was a lot of drug and and prostitution mm-hmm. happening in, down there. And it, it just wasn't a place to be, right? So Disney came in and sunk a lot of money into this place 
and it really started rejuvenating or getting other investors to come in and rejuvenate the area as well. Which building is that? Is that the one where the Lion Kings played or like where the Newsies played? I'm not sure because there's, off the top of my head, I don't know. Okay. I think it's the one where the Lion King opened. Yeah, because it looks really nice. I mean, we've never been in that theater, but. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful. Someday. Beautiful building. So we have an episode, and I don't know if you've listened to it, Tim, where it's nothing but Howard Ashman music. Have you listened to that? I don't know that I have. So it's a tribute to Howard Ashman and all of his music, even the stuff that didn't make the films. There's some pretty cool songs in there. So I would encourage the listeners and you, Tim, go back, search for it. I'm trying to look forward to see exactly what episode it is to give you guys a number or at least give you the title of it. But uh, it's a tribute to Howard Ashman, and it has all of his music. It's pretty good, man. Well, just so our listeners know, because we were ta- you know, tying this back into Eisner, 27 of 33 films, including 19 that he did in a row, were profitable for Disney when after, right after he arrived. To me, that's amazing. He, he completely turned that department around with the help of others, you know, Katzenberg and Wells, of course, but... To go from a department that wasn't making any money at all, was losing, hemorrhaging money, to having 19 in a row be profitable out of his first 33 is amazing. Yeah. So, uh, w- mention one other thing that we've mentioned previously. Robin Williams did Dead Poets Society for Disney, and that was one of the ones that was profitable. When they came back and asked him to star in Aladdin, as the, uh, take the role of the genie, he was... He accepted the role and said, you know what? You guys resurrected my career because after Mork and Mindy, he had drug and alcohol problems. Right. Yep. And so he went into rehab. And, and, and so Disney took a shot on him with Dead Poets. He said, I'll do the Aladdin for scale. Aladdin ended up making $502 million uh, worldwide and ended up receiving five Grammys. So that goes to show how important the music and the influence of Ashman and Minkin. Again, he never got to see this film released because he had passed away. But how important their role is to the profitability and resurrection, really. I mean, that's what we're talking about, is a resurrection of a company that was in decline. So that episode I was talking about earlier with Howard Ashman, that was released back on February 8th of 2016, and it's called Disney's Miracle Man. So go ahead and check that out. It's, it's a good one. So, all right, listeners, thanks again for listening to that number one podcast that entertains that space between your ears, the Mouse Capades podcast. Thanks, Vicki. Thanks, Tim. Listeners, go ahead and uh, check out our site, mousecapadespodcast.com. On the right-hand side, you'll see a link for our new radio station playing some awesome, outstanding music from Disney World, Disneyland, and some animation stuff as well. And check out our site, uh, Tim. Drawing a blank, and why do I always draw a blank? Magicalmouse.com. It's so the easy. Magical mouse. It is themagicalmouse.com. See, I want to call it Magical Mouse. I don't know why. Uh, themagicalmouse.com. He's got some great stories up there to share. Anything other? Anything new on the site right now? Oh boy, put me on the spot. I am putting here. you on the spot. I've got a lot of stuff in the works, guys. A lot of stuff that I haven't posted yet. Planning and and things of that nature. Some tips to save some money. Um, but, yeah, I mean, check it out. I'm constantly updating the news and putting some history up there. You can get the park hours and the weather on there as well. So and if gift you're cards, park, going gift cards, ask for $200 gift card from Tim. I don't have any donations up there yet, but, I'll, you know, if you want to send something to me. Speaking of things in the works, when are we going to do our Disney simulation? Uh, 
We've t- I've talked about that forever, and we got to get together and do that. we got to get through the school year. The first part of it days, is going dude. to be in the listeners. You're probably wondering the same thing, because I've, I've, I've talked it up. I talked it up for a little while. It was supposed to come out last Christmas. It never did. Disney, uh, The Disney simulation, where it's the, the first part of it is all Main Street. Yeah, so, you know, I'm going down to Disney this weekend, and you, you just lit a light bulb off in my head. It looks like it's, it's fizzling out. <laughs> How rude. No, I'm just kidding. Are you still going to get me that no. sippy cup? Yeah, I'm getting you a sippy cup. Don't don't you worry. But talking about that, I want to let everybody know that there's going to possibly be some pop-up episodes this weekend while I'm down there at Disney. Sweet. That'd be awesome. And so pay Sweet. attention. You steal the show, bro. Um, yeah, so hit that subscribe button for us, and you'll get notifications. I'm going to link back to themagicalmouse.com as well, so you'll see some of that stuff. And you can get to this podcast through that site. But I'm going to post some pop-ups while I'm down there. We're going to be down there for Dapper Days, and uh, it's going to be fun times. Awesome. Yeah, I know uh, the, the, the priest and Little Mermaid also had a pop-up as well. I think it's about that time. Peace. And love. Hakuna Matata. Have a magical day, my friends. This year, the nominees for original song are From Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast, Music by Alan Menken, lyric by Howard Ashman. From Beauty and the Beast, Bell. Music by Alan Menken, lyric by Howard Ashman. From Beauty and the Beast, Be Our Guest. Music by Alan Menken, lyric by Howard Ashman. From Robin Hood, Prince of the Thieves. Everything I do, I do it for you. Music by Michael Kamen, lyric by Brian Adams and Robert John Lang. From Hook, When You're Alone, music by John Williams, lyric by Leslie Brickus. <laughs> the Oscar goes to Alan Menken and Howard Ashman for Beauty and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. On behalf of Howard, I know if you were here, he'd want to thank Angela Lansbury for her incomparable performance of the song in the movie as Mrs. Potts, and also Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson for their performance. Uh, also, thanks to Walter A. and Robbie Buchanan for their work on the single. Give you such a crick in the neck. All of his movies were fairy tales. There you see her, sitting there across the way. She don't got a lot to say, but there's something about her. The real heritage of, of Howard is that he actually taught us how to make our movies sing again. On airplanes and in airports and in restaurants and on the telephone. People are playing Beauty and the Beast or they're playing something from one of the movies all the time. And it's one of those things that's just, it's part of life now. And you don't know why, but you're dying to try. You want to kiss the girl. But as great as a, a, a lyricist as he was, I think that uh, 
if he had been able to live longer and do a lot more work, he, he might have been the great musical book writer of our time. Yes, you want her. Look at her, you know you do. Possibly she wants you to. There's one way to ask her. Um, we talked about um, fairy tales before, but in um, children's theater with Isabel Berger, he had done Aladdin, and he had done uh, Beauty and the Beast. You know, whether it was, you know, Little Mermaid or Beauty or Aladdin or any of these things, he, he, he just had a, a simpatico uh, uh, creativity that, that just instantly plugged into these movies. And he was so certain that he was right about it. I mean, it, it and, and was. <laughs> Howard's interest and the place of our greatest need was in feature animation. It was one, it's a marriage made in heaven. I like to think today that, you know, at for Disney Animation, which has enjoyed, you know, such an extraordinary renaissance, that we have two guardian angels. One is Walt Disney, who sits over one shoulder and truly touches every frame of every movie that we make today. And the other is Howard, who sits over the other shoulder and touches every musical note that we hear of every movie today and will for decades to come sing with me now You've been listening to the all-new Mousecapades podcast, brought to you by our friends at TheMagicalMouse.com. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. If you have questions, comments, or would like to be a guest on the show, please visit our website at MousecapadesPodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. And have a magical day.